This episode is brought to you by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for over a decade since they supplied the uniforms for Anaheim Fire when I worked out in California. And they have partnered with the Behind the Shield podcast to offer you, the listener, 15% off not just a single purchase, but an ongoing discount every time you shop at 511tactical.com. And I will give you the discount code in a moment. I just want to go on a kind of product focus for a second. In episode 125 of Behind the Shield podcast, I spoke to podiatrist Dr. Mike Donato, um, and we discussed a concern that I've had, which is the footwear uh, for first responders. If you're a firefighter, obviously, if we're doing an extrication, if we're fighting fire, our bunker boots are definitely the best things. They offer a high level of protection. But the day-to-day calls, the EMS calls, all those kind of areas, they are absolutely overkill, some of the boots that we are being given. And I wanted to find a kind of happy medium between protection and comfort as a lot of these heavy, heavy boots are causing uh, overuse injuries, knee pain, ankle pain, back pain. And 5.11 Tactical has come up with a shoe called the Norris Sneaker. Now, this has the feel literally of, of a skate shoe. It's incredibly comfortable. It has puncture protection on the bottom. It has the toe protection on the front, but they've taken a lot of the weight away and made it far more comfortable. And I think many of us will admit that as an alternative to duty boots, we turn to sneakers, which are also very comfortable, but really don't offer any protection. So this is a great happy medium between the two. If you want to see this, as I said, it's called the Norris, N-O-R-R-I-S, sneaker. Go to 511 Tactical, and that discount code that I was talking about is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. That will be applicable for all of your purchases. The only time that's not going to work is when they have an additional sale that's actually going to be higher. So if they're offering a 20% or 25% off, obviously that 15 is going to be invalid because you're going to get even more off. So for the Norris sneaker and all the other things that I'm going to showcase that I personally use, I'm not going to start talking about things that I don't use, but the products of theirs that I think they're amazing, um, go to 511 Tactical, put in Shield 15, and save 15% every single time. Welcome to episode 320 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show Canadian firefighter James Johnson. Now, James is also regarded as one of the authorities on building construction in the fire service. So this was a great conversation, dispelling some of the myths, looking at some of the rooftop operations versus interior, and also talking about burnout. He is a very active uh, teacher as well as firefighter, and, and we discuss when you are doing too much. So a great conversation. Before we get to that interview, though, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. The five-star ratings really do make us more visible for people looking for a podcast like this. And as I mentioned, every single week, this is a free library of some of the greatest minds on planet Earth. And all I ask you, the audience, to do is help share these incredible women's stories and work so that we can get them to the ear holes of everyone who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, James Johnson. Enjoy. James, I want to say welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. Awesome. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Brilliant. Now, um, before we even get into it, I, I just want to offer my condolences to the Canadian people after the horrendous attacks in Nova Scotia. 
Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, super sad to see. And I know still even as early as this morning, it was still developing with hearing how many of the fatalities they were. But um, even when when they were thinking it was around the, the 10 death range, they were saying it's our largest mass shooting and, and now it's almost doubled. Um, so yeah, it's very tragic. Yeah. I mean, we're obviously just seeing this unfold now, but I can say this, I believe, because by the time it goes out, I'm sure it'll be public. But I know we lost um, a female you know, police officer and I'm, it's rumored that we lost a firefighter as well. And this this guy who I believe made dentures for a living actually was dressed as one of the Mounties as he was doing the spree and setting fire to cars. And it was it was extremely calculated. Yeah. So it's yeah, totally messed up. And, and it's it's kind of weird to see, like, um, you know, for us here in Canada, it's it's a huge, you know, it's not something that we've ever had nearly at that scale. Um, so it's, you know, even though it's the other side of the country, it kind of hits pretty close to home. Yeah, exactly. And in, in our professions, too. I mean, it's awful. Um, so how are you guys doing as far as the, the isolation and the virus in Canada? Yeah, it's been... It's been pretty interesting. Um, we in British Columbia here, I think we got on it pretty quick as far as like locking down stores and and stuff. So we um, are the amount of cases that we've had has been like they've been increasing every day, but at a pretty slow rate. Um, I think we've had less. I believe it was less than 100 fatalities from it. Um, so I think we got on it pretty, pretty early. And so definitely, it's definitely been strange, like working, working right in Vancouver, uh, you go downtown and it's like, you know, never seen it like ghost town before in like the downtown core of the city. So uh, it's definitely, definitely interesting. Yeah. Now, one thing I haven't asked any of my guests yet, because a lot of them haven't been responders the last few episodes, what are response times like at the moment? Uh, it's been really interesting for us. So we, um, we have our EMS system is run through the province of British Columbia. We have a uh, provincial run system. And so they basically dictate what we can do as far as medical intervention. And so the, the province of British Columbia, when this came out, uh, put in a bunch of restrictions for the types of calls that fire services could respond to. And so we actually had a huge drop in in our responses to to medical calls. Um, and the I think the rationale behind it from the from the province of BC side was just trying to limit the amount of exposure, potential exposure. Uh, but what it is basically drop down anything other than like the most serious of calls. Um, so we don't we haven't been responding to anything other than you know like cardiac related calls. And so it's uh, yeah, definitely, definitely been a big change in uh, in kind of call volume due to that. But I know just I, I can't speak for any of the other departments, but in Vancouver, we've we've actually seen quite a large number of fires, uh, uh, more more than reg uh, more than normal. So um, so yeah, it's kind of been a, a shift, you know, less medical calls, more fires. And interesting, yeah, because I mean, with the, with the low the roads being so clear, especially places like New York, it must be almost strange for the FDNY fire firefighters to be able to get to an address so quickly without any traffic on the road. Yeah. Yeah. We've definitely noticed that as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole new, whole new world out there responding to these calls. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that at the end of this, I mean, there's so many lessons to be learned. Um, I hope one of them is 911 abuse, like how many calls you were running, you didn't need to run. And, you know, and again, I'm not, 
there's always those anomalies. There's always that person that, you know, complains of a stomach ache and they end up having a triple A, but there is so much 911 mm-hmm. abuse. And, and I think that really cuts into when we need to be training, you know, when we need to really be honing our skills rather than just being beaten into the ground, running calls that really many first responders should never have been sent to in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of one of those, you know, it's one of those catch 22s in some ways because, um, like we, like I speak for the city of Vancouver, we're just so, so much better situated to respond to calls quickly than, um, than the BC ambulance service, just cause they're so, so overworked and understaffed. Um, but the amount, you know, there's just like any, um, integrated or any, uh, fire medical system, there's a huge redundancy in calls as well. So it's kind of that finding that middle ground. But I know when you, like in Vancouver, when you hear people that are nurses or that work in doctors that work in the hospitals. And they said the last, you know, few weeks to a month, uh, the hospitals have been super quiet as well. So I think overall, less people are just going in um, for, you know, emergencies or, or for medical issues that are maybe not emergencies. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. Of course, you know, New York, there's no question. I mean, the New York and areas of Italy, they, they absolutely got hammered, but there's definitely a takeaway as well. And I'll use my country, my home country as a, as an example, the NHS, which I cannot speak high enough of, you know, that system, I think is incredible. But they've been cut and cut and cut and cut. So I think one of the things that I'm hearing from from other people that I respect hugely is that we're seeing where some places are overwhelmed, that yes, this is a, you know, very contagious, deadly virus, but is it the virus that's overwhelming the system? Or is it the fact that systems have been cut so much that ultimately they're overwhelmed the same way as obviously you know fire stations that were closed or browned out back in the day and then people died in the first year of that area mm-hmm. yeah that's totally true it'll be interesting to see what the rollout is after you know if this eventually goes away and how you know how things will return to normal or or what the new normal will look like yeah Absolutely. All right. Well, on to your path. So uh, my usual opening question is, where were you born? And then what was your family dynamic? What did your parents do? So I I have come from a pretty interesting family dynamic. Um, I was born and grew up for the first number of years, like in really remote northern British Columbia. So uh, it's a place called Fort Nelson. And one of the one of the more northern towns in British Columbia. And so my upbringing is I was actually adopted when I was first born. My birth mom, I believe, was 16 when she had me and uh, and just wasn't 16 year old wasn't able to take care of me. So I was adopted. And then the family that adopted me, they ended up splitting up when I was still pretty young in elementary school. So moved around a ton. So I always joke about it because Fort Nelson is <clears throat> excuse me, about as north in the province as you can get. And Vancouver is the very south, uh, southwestern tip of the province. So I moved as far away from there as you could possibly get. <laughs> so, yeah, that was my um, – they moved around just a ton, um, lived with my mom, moved around. And then I eventually – once I kind of hit the junior high, middle school age, I was basically out of the house most of the time. And then I moved out on my own at a very young age. Uh, how young? So it's kind of my, uh, uh, I was basically right around graduation of high school. Okay. Right. But I wasn't really home a whole lot during that, uh, during those last few years either. So, 
Right. Gotcha. Now, it's funny that the more I've kind of gone into this journey of mental health, we always downplay divorce. Like, oh, well, everyone's divorced, so therefore it's fine. And the more I explore that, the more I realize it's, it's actually, you know, pretty traumatic. I, I went through my parents' divorce, but I was very lucky. At least I was I was basically pretty much 18 when their divorce finalized, so I was older and, and more developed, I guess you could say. My little boy went through it when he was three, um, when I divorced his mm-hmm. mother. Um, but, you know, I've seen that through through his lens now and how it has impacted him. How do you feel that the, the divorce and, you know, learning of the adoption kind of fe- affected you later in life? So there's two parts to that. So the adoption part is kind of interesting that I always knew I was adopted. So I remember being like a very young age, like knowing my birth side of the family. So um, I would say in a lot of ways, I'm actually closer with my some of my aunts and my grandmother and stuff on my biological mom's side um, than I am with my adopted, um, like the parents that adopted me side in some ways. So um, so I always knew I was adopted. Um, like there was, I don't ever have recall having a memory where I was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, s- sitting down and telling me. So um, so that's kind of interesting. Um, but as far as the, uh, divorce side, definitely, definitely really impactful. There's a lot of messy ways with how it went down in my particular family. Um, my, my parents had, um, were basically moved away into two separate areas to, to try and change the way life was. And then, um, there was a split in the middle of that. And so it was pretty, pretty messy situation. Um, so it definitely, definitely impacted. I, and I, that's something that I, I think now as I'm older, you realize more the kind of impact of it. And I think a lot of times when you're younger, you're just, you know, going through life kind of in survival mode. And then as you start getting older and start reflecting on it more, you're like, ah, okay, I can kind of see patterns that you have or certain, you know, certain ways that you act that may have been not not using that as like a crutch being like oh i'm the way that i am now because of that but i think there's it definitely can uh can kind of shift the way you look at some things yeah well i think that's it i mean that again it's it's so many conversations i have people argue the extremes like oh it's all about ownership you know versus you know i am who i am um defined by my past and the reality is both you have to acknowledge that you are how you are because of your past, but you can also change it as well. But if you don't acknowledge that middle ground, you're going to see just like we're seeing at the moment with this virus, either you're sheltering in place or you're a murderer. <laughs> There's a middle ground where <laughs> yeah. you can actually go out and do some things without murdering planet Earth. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very true. I think acknowledging past trauma is very, very important, not letting it define you, but definitely acknowledging it and maybe even you know, forgiving other people or forgiving yourself. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of remind me, have you ever heard of um, a guy named Dr. Gabor Mate? I have. heard of him? He just was interviewed by a guy who I'm about to have on, who's a British doctor, and he's someone I would love to get okay. on the show. Yeah, he's, um, so he's actually from Vancouver. He did most of his, like, um, research and a lot of his stuff that he, that he's written about is, is in the district where I work in the downtown east side of Vancouver. And uh, he he basically, he wrote a book, and I think it's called "In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts," and it basically talks about how like um, he t- he t- he specializes in addiction, but he talks about like addiction and that stuff all comes from his uh, take on it, so that it all comes from trauma from 
um, like past trauma when you're a kid or or growing up um, that kind of dictates a lot of that. So kind of found that kind of interesting because he it was some of the stuff he says, like, you know, there's trauma that you don't even realize is trauma maybe that that leads you to to be a certain way, um, you know, later on in life. Just kind of fascinating. Yeah, no, absolutely. He um, he was also in the book. Uh, Johan Hari wrote a book, uh, Chasing the Scream, and he interviewed him. Uh, and that's about addiction too. Basically, the the correlation between mental health and addiction, and then how prohibition of drugs has basically made everything so much worse. So you know, the idea of if you look at addicts as patients rather than criminals, you would literally be able to to undo the crisis that we have at the moment, which they did in in Switzerland, they did in Portugal. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, he, Gabo is definitely someone I want to try and get on one day. I think he'd be fascinating. Yeah, that would. Yeah, I forget which podcast I was listening to. Um, that I think maybe it was Rich Roll uh, podcast had uh, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate on it, and he was uh, asking Rich, like talking about trauma or something. And Rich is like, "No, I, you know, I grew up in a pretty normal family." And then, and then uh, Gabor started like asking more questions, and then Rich, you know, kind of started unveiling a few little things that Rich was kind of like, "Oh." It was kind of it was kind of interesting to see, you know, like you know, you're almost scared to talk to people like that. They're gonna dig up stuff you didn't even know was there. Yeah, lay you down, start telling you something about their mother. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well then, um, I know you got into construction and obviously ultimately ended in the fire service. Were there either of those two professions in your adoptive family growing up? No, um, not at all. My kind of stories, like, as I, like I said, I moved out fairly young and all through junior high, middle school and high school age, um, I worked, uh, I basically had to like pay my own schools, like buy my own school supplies, my own clothes, uh, pay my own school fees, like from a pretty young age. Um, and so I was working restaurant jobs and then I'd heard like, you know, if you work in the construction industry, you can make more money. And, uh, so I started, uh, eventually, trying to transition into that. So from pretty young, I started working as like a carpenter's helper and, and eventually went through and completed my, um, my apprenticeship to become a a carpenter. And then the fire service side was kind of funny how that, um, happened because all through high school, like through my later years of high school, I wanted to be a counselor or get into social work. Um, I was in, involved in the peer counseling program at school and and helped develop a peer counseling program for the for the junior high school as well. And I was really into that stuff. And uh, our peer counseling division, um, like office, was right beside the career and personal planning division that um, that did all the work experience or the ride along programs. And so um, one of the one of the people that worked in that office came to me and said, "Hey, what are you doing tomorrow?" And I said, I don't know, probably trying to skip as many classes as possible. And uh, they said, well, we got the perfect deal for you. Um, the BC Ambulance Service has a ride-along that they and that we need to fill. And if we don't fill it this year, then they might not offer it for students the next year. And so I, had, I knew nothing about the emergency services. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll go and do that. Gets me out of school for the day. And so showed up at the at the ambulance station. Uh, paramedics start showing me through. I was riding along with a, um, an ALS advanced life support crew. And uh, they start showing me through the, the car and showing me what different things are. And then we got tapped out right away to a cardiac and uh, go to the cardiac. They actually had me involved in certain areas of the call because um, there was no second car and went all the way to 
to getting into the ER, um, working on this guy to the point where the doctor just looked around and said, uh, does anyone else have any, any other ideas? And everyone kind of shook their head and then they're like, okay, time of death is, you know, 10, 14 AM or whatever the time was. And I remember just like my eyes, like size of dinner plates, like, whoa, like I had no idea anything about that world. And, um, and it totally changed the course. So I joined the volunteer fire department um, locally, like the second I could graduate. They actually let me join. Um, I think I was still 17 at the time. You're supposed to be 18. But they let me join. Um, and yeah, just changed, totally changed the course of my life. That's a, that's a hell of a ride along. Normally have cursed the ride along so you get to sit there and <laughs> just, just be in the kitchen studying your EMT book. Yeah, the, the funny part about it, too is it was supposed to be like eight hours or something like that and I ended up riding with them for 24 hours I stayed at that because I just didn't want to go they, they did a they did a crew change and I stayed on with the new crew and and just ate it up it was awesome amazing so well just going back to school for a second obviously you seem like you still keep in good shape what about um sports and athletics were you a sportsman back then no I like I played rugby a little bit um and I my Grade 12 year was mostly filled with peer counseling, shop classes, and, and PE. Um, but um, I didn't really play any organized sports um, and growing up at all. Like, just we moved around so much that I just didn't have that opportunity. Um, so, yeah, I didn't really do a whole lot in that, in that way growing up. Right. So I know you, you became a, a journeyman in construction. So did you stay with construction for a little while after you left school before you found the fire service? Yeah, so I basically did like was a volunteer firefighter and um, and a carpenter at the same time. So as I was going through my apprenticeship, I was I was a we, we call it a paid on call firefighter, but um, same same thing. So I was kind of doing both at the same time, and and I really wanted to actually I got some really good advice from one of the captains from the fire department that so I was like oh, I want to be a full time firefighter, and they're like, well, you have you you know you're you're 18, 19, you have no life experience outside of this, like go and go and get some life experience. So, um, that's why it was important to me to, to finish my, um, my apprenticeship, become a journeyman and, and kind of get some, you know, that stuff out of the way before I was, before I really committed to, to pursuing a career in the fire service. I was going to say just one thing, I guess I would, uh, just kind of talk about, and I talk about this lots when I teach about building construction is, um, because being like the term journeyman carpenter means um, something different depending on where you are, uh, particularly in the in the United States. Yeah, because in some states you'll go to if you are in the carpenters union, you get that designation automatically as a journeyman carpenter. And then other states, um, it's a system more like what we have here in Canada. So in Canada, I am um, federally um certified as a carpenter so i can go east coast to west coast anywhere and i have that designation and in order to get that designation you have a a, a series of um, on-the-job hours that you have to accumulate in order to even be eligible to go to the technical college for the uh, school blocks so for the carpentry program at the time that i did it i think you needed 1650 on-the-job hours before you're eligible to go for your first year of technical training so then you, it takes you about a year to gather all those hours. 
And uh, so you get those hours and you go to the technical school, get your training, and then you go back to the job site and you have to log another 1,650 hours um, before you're eligible to go back and to become a second year apprentice. So for most people, it takes, you know, four or five years, like the same amount of time it takes to get a college degree in order to to get through that process. Right. So what is an interesting parallel? One of my friends, Ryan, who runs the, the Powerline podcast, um, he works, he's a Powerline um uh, God, he works in the power line industry. He was talking about journeymen as well. And I realized that that's a concept that we don't have in the fire service as much. Now, you can have person A who enters the fire service and totally understands the the concept that lives are at stake and spends you know, each of their career years improving themselves on the EMS side, on, on the operational side, on the special operations side and grows and does exactly the same as a journeyman, you know, carpenter or journeyman power line worker would do. But then we also have people that get through the door and then they're like, all right, I'm good. So what is your philosophy on that concept of journeyman being applied to the fire service? Yeah, I think like I know for I don't know if it's a Canadian thing or just our system, but we have like a you basically become a first class firefighter once you hit three years, once you complete three years. So we all, we already have like a pay structure that, that it lines up with, with that kind of mindset of the journeyman aspect of it. But, um, I, I agree. Like you see some places just by necessity where, um, a lot of times smaller organizations where people will get hired and then they're, you know, they get hired and then six months later they're driving and, or they're an engineer or, um, you know, driving, driving the truck or things like that, where, um, I think there, there's a lot to be said about spending those, you know, those first, uh, few formative years learning how to be a firefighter and then, um, and then transitioning into some of those other kind of, I guess you could say specialties, um, but I definitely, I definitely agree with that, you know, start out with the basics and then, and then, you know, each year or you can slowly progress into other skill sets. And then, and I know for us, like in Vancouver, I think you have to, well, we do have like a minimum amount of time. You have to be on the job before you can start to drive. Um, being an engineer is not a promoted rank for us. It's just um, everybody, everybody drives and it's typically up to the senior members to choose um, if they want to drive or not or who they want to drive. Um, but yeah, I definitely think, I definitely think we could have something more structured as far as like an apprenticeship. Yeah. Well, we have, um, you know, the degree programs down here and you get, you know, firefighters and then they're like, oh, I'm going to do my degree in fire science. And it's a bunch of, you know, admin classes. I never understood why we didn't have some sort of fire degree where each of your special operations ones are classes, you know, maybe pediatric medical ones, you know, whatever it is where you're adding to mm -hmm. your skill set to create a degree rather than, you know, a bunch of administrative classes that aren't really going to make you any better on the fire ground whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Right. Well, you mentioned construction. So, so you've got this construction background, you do enter the fire service. So what are, you know, what was your perspective of taking that knowledge and into the, you know, becoming a fireman with already having that kind of uh, education under your belt? 
So as I was doing both like the paid on call and doing my apprenticeship, I immediately could see um, the correlation, like how important those two things were together. Like if it's anything like just understanding the way that fire spreads or um, especially an overhaul, kind of understanding how much of this building we need to rip up and what areas we need to rip up. Um, I could see that was really important. And then when I got hired in Vancouver, uh, going through there, just it was kind of just a normal mentorship sort of thing where, you know, I'd be talking to certain guys about, you know, about building construction and how it affects, you know, we'd come back from a fire and be like, oh, this is why the fire did this, because because the building forced it to do that. And so um, and that just kind of led me down the path of wanting to teach um, and kind of pass some of that along. And what really happened for me to kind of boost it was um, it was I always wanted to go to FDIC out in Indianapolis. It was always kind of a dream of mine, but it's that's quite a ways from from Vancouver and it's can be quite expensive. So I was like, oh, I'll try putting in a class. And uh, and so I first I think it was 2016. I pitched a class and um, and it got accepted. And it was a building construction class. Uh, and I, I could talk about it here. It's kind of a funny story, actually, um, how, it, how it all went down. But so FDIC is in April every year. And it was in, I believe it was in December of the, leading up to FDIC. Um, I get uh, I get an email from uh, Bobby Halton, who's the editor of Fire Engineering Magazine. And he's the guy who kind of runs FDIC. So I get an email from mom that's um, that's forwarded from a trade group that was um, that had contacted them and asked for my class to be pulled from the conference. And so uh, the apparently the name of my class um, hit a course, struck a chord with the people that uh, um, that run that particular trade organization. So they had asked them to cancel my class. And so Bobby Halton, to credit to him, he said, no, like run your class, keep it the exact same. Um, don't change any of your content. But what he did is he invited um, some of the people from this trade organization, this construction trade group, to actually attend FDIC. And they sent members out. And so uh, what Chief Halton did is he actually put a few of the heavy hitters in the construction world, um, like fire service. Like um, he had Glenn Corbett, who took over Brannigan's building construction for the fire service book. And he's one of the technical editors for fire engineering and had Jack Murphy and had Bill Gustin and a few of the few of the kind of FDIC OGs come and sit in my class just in case the um, trade organization ended up, you know, causing any kind of a ruckus and so that's kind of how it uh that's kind of how it bloomed for me all of a sudden there was a bunch more interest and i had a pretty big turnout for the class um and uh yeah that kind of developed and kind of sent me down the path of teaching quite a bit more wow no pressure for your first time in the <laughs> i know <laughs> yeah I, I i don't know do you you're down in florida do you know bill gustin at all um yeah actually we i was trying to get him on um and then uh, I think he had some issues with some some of these these uh, OGs like you said that are so well embedded in their departments. They they just kind of worry about speaking freely. So um, he we were going to, and then he ended up saying, "Yeah, I don't think I, I can at the moment." That's the crazy thing I think about Bill. He's one of my favorite people. But uh, like that when he was in the class, he was 
sitting in the front row with his notepad taking notes the whole time from some, you know, dumb Canadian who's a nobody. <laughs> and um, every year I see him at FDIC, he's sitting in the front row of the class with his notepad. And, you know, it's like we got, we got, you know, there's guys all over the fire service that you can't, you can't even uh, get to stay awake or even attend a class. And then you have somebody who's got over 40 years of experience, like, you know, one of the most respected kind of engine guys, um, and he's there taking notes and just soaking up information. Uh, we actually have a group um, that formed, and um, we used to be called the Construction Geeks Group, and we would have a dinner at FDIC every year. And um, one of our members, his name was Gregory Havel. Um, he passed away last year. Um, he used to write the construction concerns articles for fire engineering all the time. And uh, so we actually just shifted the name of our group to the Havel Society. Um, but we do a group um, – and uh, and we're always sending each other articles, and Bill kind of spearheads that whole thing. Um, so just a great human. Oh, excellent! Yeah, but you hit the nail on the head. The the men and women that I've always admired in this profession are the ones that are just a part of a crew. They may have bugles on their you know on their collar, but they're passionate firefighters or passionate paramedics. And and I think that's something that you know when we were talking earlier about the journeyman thing is very very true. They're not looking to promote so the pay jump you know they're looking to really learn their job and they may well find themselves in 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 you know lieutenant captain chief spots but there's there's that burning firefighter under whatever rank that they have and i think that's that's the kind of man or woman that i've always fought to work under because i with 14 years when i retired out you know i, I some people will be like oh you think you're the world's best firefighter but no i, I shake the tree because i'm I'm not. I've only got 14 years. I want to work with someone who's got 30 years that still loves a job and will teach me what I need to know. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not even halfway through a regular career yet. So those true <laughs> journeymen, men and women, are the ones that I admire so much, and they're the ones that we should be learning from. Yeah, yeah, I totally just you crave being around those people. Um, yeah, I totally relate. All right. Well, just touching on FDIC for a second. So. Um, what's been the feedback this year? Are they just basically completely scrapping it and just picking up next year? We haven't heard yet. They sent out a, um, they sent out a, like a survey monkey sort of thing, um, asking if people thought we should postpone till September or do it again next year. Uh, but I haven't heard anything yet. It's actually kind of interesting. I would be on the plane today heading there. Yeah, I know. It's funny. I was thinking that when uh, when we did this, I saw it pop up. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, FDIC is just such. I've been lucky now that um, that I've been able to teach every year since 2016 when I got accepted, and and it is just um, yeah. If if any of the listeners have never been, it's it's pretty pretty incredible experience. Um, it's a, it's an incredible experience if you go and and you know th- throw yourself into all the classes and really you know take advantage of it. But even just all the the social side of it, the nightlife, like, you know, there's one Irish pub called Clada that's right downtown, um, Indy. Um, and you go there like basically any of the nights and it's every, every you know, every instructor you could, uh, you could think of is, is there and they're, you know, you can ask them any question, talk to them about anything. And, and, uh, yeah, so it's pretty, pretty incredible event. And so yeah, I'm not sure if it'll, if it'll go, I think it's all up in the air for this year, but um, but they had been talking about maybe in the fall. 
Yeah, uh, it just seems like the logistics of something that big. And I wonder if they're able to, yeah. to do it or just, just kind of cut their losses and do it next year. <laughs> Here's the scale of FDIC and what and what that um, conference means to the city of Indianapolis. Um, so they do, um, for all the hands-on training, they do full-day classes and they do half-day classes. And I remember my first year there, um, walking back to the hotel, I think at lunch or something like that, and seeing um, the buses that are going back and forth for the half-day classes being um, escorted by um, IPD, like the Indianapolis police, lights and sirens, like code three, so they could make the timelines because some of them are a fair distance drive and they have to be able to get two four-hour classes in another day. So they have um, blowing red lights with a, with a charter bus full of students following behind the cops. Um, and that's just kind of the, the how great Indianapolis is for supporting um, supporting that conference. Wow. So it makes me want to do a half-day class so I can ride the bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. All right. Well, we need to transition into building construction. Like I said, I don't want it to be the focus of the, the whole conversation, but I, I've had a unique um, experience with the fire service because I started in Florida and ended up working in, in Southern California for a while and on a truck company and then came back to Florida. So for my perception... <laughs> two, two ends. Yes, exactly. <laughs> two, two, two total different ends of the spectrum. Exactly. So you know, I'm taught in, in Orlando, um, even like the ladder throws and everything are very, very um, geared towards not going on the roof. <laughs> and then I go end up working as, as a tillerman on a truck company on the roof of any fire where you sensibly should be cutting a heat hole. Let me preface that. Um, and then coming back to to uh, Florida and hearing some of the most ridiculous things. Like when I was in California, I had to relearn how to throw ladders and everything. I mean, it was it was a very sharp learning curve because I was in the academy, like the orientation. So, you know, I was under the microscope for a while for not knowing how to do some of this stuff because I was not from, from that area. Um, but then seeing how effective the, the vertical ventilation was and, and, and the knowledge of building construction that I had to learn in that probationary year and, and obviously onwards on what you can cut you know what you don't cut how you cut you know panelized roof versus you know conventional construction whatever it is um and then come back and hear the the ridiculous justification why some of these departments back in florida don't get on the roof oh it's too dangerous oh we have lightweight construction over here you know and like that doesn't <laughs> happen anywhere else in, in america so i've had a very very kind of a, a rude awakening on the myths in the fire service when it comes to building construction. I know one of your classes is facts, not fear. So what are some of the biggest myths that you hear a lot? And, and, and what is some of the construction knowledge you use to dispel those? So I think the big thing for me is um, the myths come with, like, I personally believe a lot of the myths come from, um, not understanding what the actual cause of a failure is and not and and just taking that kind of anecdotal information um, as opposed to like actually breaking it down and looking at what actually happened. Um, so I, I'll just use one example. Um, a, a guy that I know from um, from kind of down your way um, contacted me and said, hey, we had uh, we had a truss collapse. Um, a section of trusses came down and um, and, you know, kind of I think everybody got out of it fine. But when you look at all the pictures, 
what happened was the corner, you could see from the pictures that the corners of the walls where the trusses were sitting, those two walls separated. So now that there was no place for those trusses to be bearing. So then that section of the roof came down. So is, so that's like a, that's just one example of, is that a failure in the truss roof or is that a failure in the load bearing walls that created that issue? So I think there's a lot of those things in the fire service where we say, oh, this is what the end result was. And we don't go back to seeing what the, what the contributing factors were that caused that. So one of the big, the big things um, that you hear all the time is, um, is that a you know, we like you referenced already, trusts are like being up on the roof is super dangerous. Being up on the roof is super dangerous if you don't understand a couple things. If you don't understand where the fire location is, if you don't have an idea of, of where it's been and where it's going, and if you don't know your your construction and, and understand the limiting factors. So I ask this in my classes all the time. If you if you just objectively look at a a roof system and you have trusses or or rafters and then you have your roof decking what what is the material that would fail the fir- fail first and most of the time people that you know have experience up on the roof or seasoned firefighters will be like the decking or the sheathing and that's true because that's the material that has the least amount of mass and the greatest surface area so that's where you're going to see the failures first so yes, a roof can be a dangerous place to be on, but if you um, if you're using your you know knowing the location of the fire and your sounding, which is the biggest diagnostic tool for us, um, when when people are up on the roof is that sounding, they're not going to get into those positions where it's dangerous. If that makes sense. No, it does completely, and it's what I saw. You know, I mean, I I remember a training fire we had in Anaheim that got out of hand. They almost called us like a, a full comp to come respond to our training fire. It was a bunch of abandoned apartments. But um, and again, even that was from a mistake from prepping the fire and putting holes where they shouldn't be in firewalls and things. But um, yeah, I mean, you can absolutely tell when a roof gets spongy once you've once you've been trained. And that's the big thing I talk about is you cannot do any roof operations safely without really, really good training. Absolutely. I agree 100 percent. But, you know, so therefore, there's the answer. So you train the people. But the, the the thing I got in Florida so much was, oh, we don't put people on the roof. And then my response would be, but you put people under the roof. So if it's so damn dangerous, it's going to fall. As soon as a match this, my matchstick hits it, then you're going to kill a bunch of people underneath. The sooner you get that fire out, the safer it is for people on the roof and uh, underneath. So a couple things I want to just quickly touch on. One thing that you just said was... Um, that the roof being spongy. That's something that I like to talk about too, because um, understanding what spongy is, is um, because a lot of people think spongy and they uh, attribute it or they think about it as bouncy or springy. But um, if you like, you, you were obviously out in Southern California, if you go up on a panelized wood roof or any kind of a wood lightweight roof system that's brand new, and you get out on it and you start putting your weight and bending your knees and it'll bounce. It's springy and that's brand new. And then understanding that spongy is is like uh, uh, I've heard people comp- uh, actually in one of our classes recently in Portland. Uh, one of the guys said if you're on like wet shag carpet and you step on it, kind of that feeling. Um or I know the guys in classes have taken a sheet of uh, OSB and taken those big um, 
those big tiling sponges, soaked them in water and put a few of them underneath it and then had the guy step on it. That's truly what spongy is. And um, so there's a difference between that and and bouncy and springy that could naturally be there. Yeah, yeah, because you, you get that feeling, don't you, of, of regular roof where your roof hook is bouncing off a certain way. And when you start sounding... Um, you know, a roof that's been compromised, like you said, it's not a pushback. It, it's it's almost like a sinking feeling. Mm-hmm. And then the second point you brought up, um, this was kind of a a little bit of a um, a little bit of a thing that helped helped me transfer uh, mindset for some people. Was uh, a friend of mine's name is Brian Lynch, and he's a lieutenant in Colorado Springs. But he created a document because he he was involved with a lot of roof work and uh, truck company stuff. And he was hearing a lot of these things as well. So he actually went and, and created a document. So he went back and looked at all the line of duty deaths attributed to um, any kind of structural collapse. Um, and went back as um, from 1993 or 1994. At the end of 1993, the U.S. Fire Administration changed the way that they recorded line of duty deaths. So they um, they just basically put a, a bunch more um, data or information into it. So they they um, he was able to look at um, where the firefighter was when they died, what the construction type was, what their task was, what the firefighter's task was. Basically, look at all these factors. And so he dove into each one. And um, one of the things that you says, like if it's so dangerous to be on the roof. Um, why are we sending people underneath it? When he looked at that report, 80% of the line of duty deaths from roof collapse were from people either doing search and rescue inside the building or on the attack line. 80%. Wow. And um, I think in that one, there was only 6% of the line of duty deaths from roof collapse were people on the roof in that window or in that time frame. So, um, so it's one of those things. Like I, I personally believe um, I don't, I don't care if you are the the best instant commander in the entire world. Um, there's n- there's nobody who um, can understand what's happening structurally more than somebody who's at an elevated position um, looking at that roof. So I'm a huge advocate for sending people to the roof. You don't have to send them on or be in a compromised position um, if you're not comfortable with that. But having an elevated position and being able to read the roof is huge for knowing what's going on with that structure. Yeah. And I want to be very clear as well. I'm not talking about like, you know, the middle of winter with ice everywhere on a super steep pitch tile roof. The ones I've worked on have been, you know, more gentle pitch. Both of them have been in warm areas. So we're not talking about ice. But when you've cut a heat hole and you see everything that comes out and then you've, you know, it's been your turn to be on the engine company that fire and you see what happens when that heat hole's cut. And then you go back and someone says, oh, no, 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 it's black and white. You should never get on the roof. It's like, no, you're wrong. Like you talk about survivability. If you get a safe journey, like you said, sounding and following construction members to an area, cut a heat hole, you know, extend it if you need to. It's amazing what it does inside. Like everything that's, that's bad goes away. It goes out the top. Heat rises. And then you know, you're talking about it's for them. Well, that's about as as for them as you can possibly be, remove everything that's trying to kill the people in the house and send it up into the sky. And then even with the larger buildings, the apartment complexes, the strips, they work so incredibly well if they're done right, if they're not you know too close to the seat of the fire and you, you outrun by it. But you've just saved 
everything for the families in, in the other side that not just the lives and the pets but their photographs you know all the all the memorabilia just by getting on the roof understanding building construction cutting a sensible safe defensive cut and then getting the hell off the roof which is the other big thing don't stand there and observe your uh, your craftsmanship well, and the other thing too is um, I have a, a couple of friends that work for um, LA City, Walter Kabilka and Neil Dickey, two just really solid guys. Um, but you talk to those two guys, and they like I could talk roofs and building construction with them for hours because they're like true students to um, to building construction. Like, and so that's one of the big things too is, um, yeah, the roof can be an intimidating place or any, any structure can be an intimidating place if you don't understand it, but you get, you know, departments like, you know, basically anyone in Southern California, but LA city, uh, being an example, those, you talk to those guys that are on those busy truck companies, they understand roof construction very, very well. And they, you know, they take a lot of time to understand it, which is, which is exactly who you want up there. So I actually teach uh, with a company with some guys from Anaheim. Oh, you do? Which, um, what are their names? Yeah. So, uh, Tim Adams is a battalion chief there. Yeah, I know Tim. And uh, Tim, Tim Sandifer. Yep. I know another him one, too. a couple guys that yeah, teach with uh, a group that I'm involved with. Excellent. Yeah. Well, they, they, they were the ones teaching me like when I was a, a probie yeah. with them, you know, and that's, and that's just it. I know Tim built houses and, um, Tim Adams built houses, and there's another guy, Ralphie, that was a uh, you know construction guy as well. So yeah, I mean that was that was the lesson, and it's kind of like we talked about at the beginning with at the beginning with the journeyman. You, we have crafts to develop, whether it's the paramedicine side, whether it's you know truck work, um, you know uh, high angle rescue, training, you know, whatever it is, whatever your field that you kind of craft to become your expertise. You're a student you know not only until you retire i've retired i still want to go do vmr classes and that stuff you know you never know it might save a life <laughs> yeah. outside you know i have i have tools in my car and um tourniquets and all kinds of stuff i'm a bit of a, a weirdo mm -hmm. like that but yeah i mean if you have a passion for that and you keep learning every single day that you that you learn makes it you know obviously more effective as far as a rescue is saving someone else but also that promise to your family that you said that you'd come home the next shift mm -hmm. One other thing I'd like to just touch on, because you asked about the myths, another one that I see a ton, um, and this pops up on social media all the time, is um, there's a lot of misinformation out there about um, a lot of the engineered products as well. Things like structural composite lumber, um, which would be like laminated strand lumber or um, or glue laminated timber, those kind of things. Um, there's tons of misinformation where people are looking at them like they're cheap garbage and that they off gas at really low temperatures and fail. And, and a lot of that stuff is just not documented. You can look at all the material testing of it and uh and it just doesn't they they're actually uh, in a lot of cases stronger than solid lumber of the same dimension so something i always talk about in my classes is um is the kind of the principle of mass over math so we want mass and in, in our structural members of any building we're fighting a fire in because mass gives an inherent uh, fire resistive quality to it but now what we see is anytime where there's math or engineering principles that reduces the, the physical size of it, that's where we can get into some issues. So like a good example of the engineered stuff is um, laminated strand lumber or LSL. Um, and if any of the listeners want to look it up, 
it's a material and sometimes they use it actually for framing lumber. And I've seen people just freak out and say, you know, oh, it's that's cheap garbage. Well, it's actually about three times more expensive than normal framing lumber uh, in a lot of a lot of places. Um, it's actually hardwood lumber strands that are pressed together with a, like a thermal set adhesive, which actually can get stronger um, initially with heat. They're very dense, very heavy. And um, what a lot of the testing shows is the actual wood fibers start to combust before the actual adhesives do. So, you know, there's just a lot of that stuff where, where we, we say, oh, if it's got adhesives or it's got glue in it, it must be bad. And there's been a lot of advancements in these building materials that, you know, that's, that's the least of our worries in a lot of cases. Um, so just something I kind of wanted to touch on. There's lots of information you can, if you actually look at, look up each of the individual manufacturers and you can read their spec reports and I'll tell you what, what fire tests that the materials have been under. And it, uh, a lot of it debunks a lot of what, what people say out there. Right. So, well then conversely, what are some of the, the uh, things that we're seeing in construction these days that are making it more dangerous for us? Um, anything with reduced mass, like um, wood eye joists, are something that I still um, I'm a little bit hesitant about. Um, I know in the United States, it, after there was a line of duty death in Green Bay, Wisconsin, 2006, Lieutenant Artie Wolf, um, where he fell through a lightweight floor system. And shortly after that, um, there was a lot of work done with the International Association of Firefighters and the International Fire Chiefs Association, I believe, um, where they worked really hard to um, to get some code changes. So now I think it was the 2009 um, International Building Code. You actually have to have 30 minutes of fire protection, like either being sheetrock or drywall um, on the underside of any lightweight floor system. Um, in Canada, we don't have that requirement. Um, we can have unfinished basements. So that's something that um, we're currently um, addressing right now. So wood eye joists is something that that um, just because the if you're not familiar with wood eye joists uh, for the listeners, it's a top and bottom uh, flange, and then you have the cord or the stem, which is OSB in the middle. Um, so it's got very little mass; they can fail relatively quickly um, under fire conditions. Um, the another thing is um, the one thing with lightweight materials is they create um, paths for fire to travel. So if you have something like parallel cord truss floor systems, uh, I know Bill Gustin is, likes to refer to them as horizontal um, balloon frame. Um, you can basically have fire spread from one side to the other. And then something else we're seeing now is a lot of the foams um, and plastics. I know, you know, stuff like the Grenfell Tower, that combustible cladding. Um, we have that stuff in North America. We just don't allow it to be to the same heights that they did there. Um, there's lots of, you know, um, polyisocyanurate or different kinds of um, rigid insulation that we use on the exterior of buildings beneath the siding. Um, so that's kind of some of the things that um, that I think are major concerns. Yeah. Actually, you, you said about the uh, the joists. We have um, placards now here um, outside, I think, all all businesses now. And it's either an R, an F, or an R and F. And it's, you know, roof and or floor as far as lightweight. But that comes from a local uh, line of duty death we had in Orlando here, Mark Benj and Todd Aldridge in 1989. And that was actually a uh, you know, ceiling collapse. They had this T-shirt shop had all this storage above, and they went in, almost basically nothing showing in the store and then 
the whole thing collapsed on top of him and, and killed two. And one guy actually managed to escape by basically slamming his bottle through a glass door that was chained and getting himself out. But that was a, a horrendous tragedy that was definitely, you know, construction based. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one, actually, and that's a, I think that's a state requirement for Florida is to have um, to have anything lightweight placard. Um, but something I would just want to touch on is I talked about 2009, how they require um, fire protection on the underside of floor systems. Um, something for the listeners is I, I would highly recommend contacting your building department or you could probably find it online. But there are certain states or even certain counties that have been able to um, uh, in different organizations have been able to lobby to get those removed. So I know the state of Indiana is a good example where they've been able to remove that requirement um, to have fire protection on the underside of floor systems. So really? um, something to to look at. Yeah, and that's and that's the problem. I do I do lots of stuff now. Um, I work with the International Association of Firefighters as a kind of building code consultant and attend code hearings and meetings. And um, and a lot of a lot of times when I go to these meetings, I'll be the only fire service representative in the room. And uh, you have you know multiple people from each of the trade groups like you know, um, that are there that are all advocating for their their products to be used. And so um, it's something that we definitely have as a challenge is uh, with the fire service is just kind of having our voice heard in a lot of those arenas. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to touch on one more um, myth or not myth. I'm be interested to get your perspective on it that I remember being told in fire Academy and have never seen it in 14 years. Um, the fact that if one truss on a regular roof system breaks, then the whole thing's going to come crashing down. Yeah. So this is something I talk about in classes too. Um, and I'll, t- I'll tell you where I believe this came from. Um, if you like out on the East coast, they've had some horrific line of duty deaths. They had, you know, Hackensack Ford, uh, in New Jersey and they had wall bombs in New York, um, where they had, you know, large truss roofs that had failures in them. And um, if you look at some of those big, heavy truss roofs, like the older ones, typical spacing between the trusses can be 16 to 20 feet in between each truss. So if I, if I have a 16-foot um, span between trusses and I lose one truss, well, now I've got a 32-foot hole in that roof, essentially. So I think a lot of that, if one truss fails, they all fail, comes from comes from that kind of idea where the trusses are so far spread that if you do lose one, it, it can be quite um, catastrophic. When you look at today, modern trusses, modern trusses for the most part are 24 inches on center. So even if I lose one or two trusses, if they become compromised, um, that the hole that would be left is relatively small. Um, and then the way that we, the way that we sheet or we put our decking on a roof is we overlap and we create what's called like a diaphragm system. So you'll put a sheet of plywood on it and they'll cover, you know, four trusses. And then the next sheet of plywood, you go at the center span of the first one. So they kind of overlap just the same way that you would lay tile with half a tile on the floor. Um, so all the seams don't line up. And so what that creates is if you do have a failure in a couple trusses, 
Well, that sheathing on each side extends to the good trusses, and that's typically what holds it in um, and kind of create, you know, it, it. and there's, you know, we always say, yeah, you don't want to say never or always. There are things that can happen. For the most part, that kind of overlapping of the sheathing and that diaphragm system is what prevents that catastrophic failure. Well, I'm so glad I asked that because, like I said, I've, I've seen so many, you know, fires that have, have um, gone through the roof, um, you know, some pretty huge ones, you know, the apartment complexes. And, and the only thing that actually ultimately caused a collapse was the two deck guns that were, <laughs> that were just, you know, pam- <laughs> yeah. pounding them from the outside. But, but again, you know, it's just, it's, I think it's so important in this profession to just question everything. Like just because you read it in a textbook, does that actually mean it's a thing? And obviously it's dynamic. It might be right in one fire and completely wrong in another. But um, yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense that that staggered, um, the way they lay the plywoods in a staggered formation, you know, does grasp onto the, the sides that are good. And that does absolutely explain why they stay intact. And and like I said, it's not, you know, it doesn't always, there can be things that happen. Like one big thing that we see is, is uh, builders or contractors that don't do things properly that contribute to, that can contribute to early failure. So we always have to kind of be on the ball and be aware of that stuff. But, um, but that's like, and you said it perfectly. If I'm sure if any of the fire service listeners that are listening to this, um, we've all been at those defensive fires where we're, you know, the surround and drowned. And it's always that slow, you know, one part of the roof falls where we've flooded it with water and then the next part comes down and the way to the first part that failed pulls the rest of it. And, and, um, you know, you can, you can get yourself into trouble on the roof and you can get yourself into trouble from collapse being un- under it. But if you understand where the fire's been, where it's going, um, how long it's been burning and understand the construction, you're automatically in a better position to, to operate a little more safely. Yeah. Yeah. I need to talk about the, you know, the, the incidents that do happen on the roof. I know most of the ones that I remember looking at, um, where there was some sort of fall through the roof or, you know, God forbid, a fatality. Usually there was some sort of, um, you know, quote unquote, going farming prior to that, where they came off where they'd been sounding. So I think, you know, that, that nothing's guaranteed, but between building construction and training and good sounding practices, I think you can make the roof, you know, pretty, pretty safe in, in that environment, I and mean, we're firefighters, of course, what we do is not completely safe and you can't make it safe, but you can definitely improve your, your outcome incredibly just by using education and drills. Yeah, and, and there's also another part of it too is realizing when, when you can make a difference. So I look in my kind of area of the city in East Vancouver, all like we have basically zero lot lines. So um, you'll have one house where the eaves are overlapping the house beside it. And you can barely walk in between the two of them. Like they're basically right next to each other. Um, And so that means that if you're going to get to the roof, the only ways you can do it is at the peak on the alpha or the Charlie side. Um, And then another thing that we have is a huge majority of our houses, especially on the east side, are two and a half or three and a half story. So you have that half story up top. So unless the fire's in the very top floor, um, there, and you, it's, you're not doing any good by going up there. So um, 
that's kind of the thing you have to understand too, is understand the construction, but also understand the fire behavior principles and the amount of time it's going to take you to, to make a benefit. Um, you know, to, it's, if, if it's even beneficial to do it, that's a totally different story or a different, um, situation then then is it safe to go there it's like is is our work going to be worth it are we going to make a benefit or is, is what we're doing going to be uh, beneficial absolutely and you know, like, like you said as well the the lives at stake you know if it's a single story i mean a, you know a, a building sitting on its own in the middle of nowhere verified no one is in this building you know is there a point of even actually putting anyone on the roof at all or you know risk a lot to save a lot risk a little to save a little mm. All right. Well, I want to transition to um, an area that we discussed when we spoke prior to the uh, the interview, and I think it's very important. So we have got, um, you know, the 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 passionate firefighter, the passionate police officer, medic, whoever it is, um, does their job, and a lot of us then go and take classes all over the place. People like yourself go and teach classes all over the place, but with the work week, something I talk about, you know, a huge amount, <laughs> flog the horse on that one. Um, you know, we're already taxed just from the work week. And then you get people, whether they're taking extra shifts, whether they're going and teaching, whether they're taking extra classes. And burnout is definitely a real thing. And I think it's something that we don't realize sometimes till we're way, way down that path. So tell me about your own personal experience with that. Okay, so um, I, you know, if, if you always try and look for the positive of any situation, and if there's been any positive with this, um, with the COVID-19 and this pandemic that's been going on, is, um, is kind of the forced rest that it's created for me. Um, I was going, I went into an insanely busy fall with teaching, and then was going into an even crazier spring and uh, basically overnight, within 72 hours, I had essentially every class I had for most of the year um, cancel or or um, look to reschedule. And um, and it was it was pretty incredible to see that, um, it, you know, I love traveling and teaching. I really do. I'm really, really terrible at scheduling. Um, so I had multiple, you know, multiple cities um, in, in a single month, um, and then on top of my normal work and, and my normal life. Um, and so it was, it was a little bit of a weight off my shoulders when that whole thing happened, um, and kind of forced me to, to look at things a little bit differently. Um, and so I, like I said, all the departments that, um, that I was scheduled to teach for in the conferences, I'm looking forward to, to rescheduling those, but, um, it just, and I just pulled up a quote here that I, mean, I know this has been passed around a ton. Um, but I saw this and it kind of speaks to what we're talking about in the rush to return to normal, use this time to consider which parts of normal are worth rushing back to. Um, and I just kind of thought that hit the nail on the head for me. Absolutely. Well, I, th I think something I've talked about too, and I'm seeing this now is the efficiency piece. So, for example, and obviously this is separate from you going and actually talk, especially places like FDIC, but I think people are realizing they can disseminate information or they can do whatever profession they were doing in a much more um, efficient way. And I'm hearing talks of um, some companies are realizing that they might not need the brick and mortar that they were housing their employees in because they're basically doing the same job from home so obviously that's not applying to to fire service because we have to go to a station and jump on a emergency vehicle and respond to you know to an address 
but I think the efficiency of these Instagram lives, these YouTube videos people putting together, podcasts, you know, whatever it is, there there are ways where we can still deliver information. Obviously, people can still make money from it if, if they do it in a certain way without having to jump jump on a plane and physically have to fly over there or jump in your car. Let's say you work in LA, a desk job. Jump in your car, fight traffic on, on the 405 for an hour and a half to sit at a desk to do exactly the same thing you could do in your home office and now you just added three more hours with your family instead of clogging up the roads. So there, like you said, there, there are so many things I think that we can improve and streamline so that we aren't as burnt out. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think a lot of times, I can speak for myself, um, people that, that are motivated or driven or do all these things, we, we put ourselves into these situations. Um, like it's, it's all self-inflicted for the most part, like um, as far as doing too much maybe or overextending ourselves. Um, and so it's kind of, you know, when you get forced into that position to reevaluate and look at how, you know, look at how things are. And it's, like I travel and teach and I do the stuff I do because I, because I hope that it makes a difference. It has nothing to do with, and you can talk to any, any instructor that's, you know, worth their weight. They, it's not about money. It's not about going out and making money or, or it's not about, um, about, um, putting yourself on a platform in any way. It's just about getting the information out there. And, um, and so, like, I really still believe and I want to do that. But um, I know, I realize I could do that maybe a little bit in a in a better way that um, is better for, you know, my health and better for, you know, just uh, like, you know, not selfish, but just a little bit better for longevity and being able to continue to do this in a, in a, a longer capacity. Yeah. Well, and that's it. It's, it's you know the middle ground yet again, and and I think that's the hard thing for people in our professions is that we wanna we wanna be there when the shit hits the fan. You wanna be part of the solution, but where you know where is that point in the sand where you're like, okay, but if I go past here, actually I'm gonna be doing less because I'm gonna be destroying myself, and and what I'm putting out actually will be probably lesser quality down the road than if I'd given myself some rest and recovery as well. Mm-hmm. Something else that we've had with this whole pandemic, and I know it's something you've talked about a ton, is um, our job has switched over to a, sh- a different shift schedule just to a couple different things. One of them is to um, to try and reduce the amount of crew interactions. So traditionally, we did 10s and 14s. So for any of the listeners that aren't familiar with the shift patterns, we basically did two 10-hour days. Uh, back to back and then we would go to 14 hour nights back to back and then we'd have four days off and so with um with the whole pandemic and just um, things are going on they switched us to a 24 hour schedule and so the schedule they put us to right now is 24 hours on and then two days off and then 24 hours on and then four days off and um and i cannot possibly express how amazing it has been to um just for like health um for my sleep patterns for so many things it's been like just a night and day difference um and just you're working the exact same amount of hours in the same four day block but just the just the shifting of the just the pattern that you work has been like yeah it's it's incredible 
Amazing. And again, that's, so that sounds like a, a 42 hour work week when you break it Correct. down. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, that's all I, I mean, we're talking about middle ground. We're talking about simplicity. We're talking about looking at things and questioning, do they work? That's it. I mean, everyone I know who works 24, 72 or this pattern that you're on now, that seems to be the, the gold standard, you know, the, the shifting days and nights, you know, that you guys do that, that, the, you know, a lot of the EMS and police departments do, they aren't good. Like all these sleep experts I have on that changing that circadian rhythm is terrible. But then the 2448s or God forbid the 2424s that some people do, I mean, they're just destroying them. So I, I hope and thank you for adding your voice to that, that people will, will realize after this as well, we, we want the healthiest, fittest firefighters, police officers, paramedics, and sadly, we're seeing a lot of our fellow men and women in, you know, in blue and in the fire service falling. And I think a lot of that is because when we say this thing, you know, targets the weak, we feel like we're strong. But actually, physiologically, a lot of these shifts are really breaking us down and making us more vulnerable. And we're on the front line. Yeah, I just remember like you work your first, like in the old schedule, you work your first night shift and then you go home and you basically have, by the time you get home, you have, you know, eight hours to try and rest and, and, um, and then get ready to go for another night shift. And it's just, um, the amount now where you, even if you get slammed for 24 hours, the shortest time you have away is, is 48 hours to rest. And it's been, and another thing too, they talked about is they're like, Oh, a 24 hour schedule, it'll be way harder to could potentially be way harder to drill or train. And we've actually found the opposite. We have a probationary firefighter right now. And, um, you know, we're getting at least two, sometimes three drills in, in, in a 24 hour shift. We'll drill with him. We'll do something with the crew. And then um, I work in a rescue company, so we'll do some sort of a tech, technical rescue-related drill as well. Um, so 24-hour actually takes away from some of those redundancies that we that we had when you have a, you know, a midday shift change. So it's been super beneficial for us. Excellent. And that's, that's a great thing to hear because when I talk about shifts, people immediately that are doing 24s freak out like, oh, you want us to go to 12s? I'm like, I never said that. <laughs> I think that the fire service is very unique, whereas unlike law enforcement where, you know, they, they're not checking out, you know, an entire vehicle worth of gear, you know, and they don't have all these, these, uh, these training, the online training, the, the, the paramedical EMT training. I mean, we have so much that we have to do. I, I, I think the 24 is much better so that by the time we get to 12 hours into our shift, all that stuff's been done and now you're kind of focusing on running calls. Well, if you come in 12 hours in, now James has got to do his checkouts, you know what I mean? So I think that the 24s for our profession are very good if you give the rest and recovery after them. So it's great to hear that you that you had that perception yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions, but I do want to just um, talk about mistaken identity for a moment because I think it's a funny story <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about that that day yeah. oh it's funny so um yeah I, I I messaged you right after this happened but um in February end of February beginning of March um right before this actually all broke out um we were down in Portland for the firemanship conference which is um just an absolutely incredible conference if you um, want to check that out um, it's in Portland every year, kind of February, March. Uh, so we're at one of the pubs, and um, 
there's a guy there that we're chatting with and I've, you know, there's a few other instructors and people around and, um, comes up and, and is like chatting for a minute. And then, um, and then a friend of, of his comes up and he's like, Hey, he's like, this is, uh, James gearing. He runs the behind the shield podcast and in- introduces me as that. <laughs> and, um, it was kind of funny. I just kind of shook, you know, there's, it was later in the night and there was probably a few, uh, adult beverages had been had at that point. Um, but though everyone I was with just kind of all, you know, took a sip of their drink, <laughs> didn't, didn't say anything. And we all, we all had a good laugh afterwards. So, um, you know, Canadian accent and, and your accent, you know, could be mistaken, I guess. But. Yes, maybe after 10 drinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was a pretty funny story. Yeah, that so. is. Absolutely. Well, um, <laughs> speaking of podcasting, so tell me about the, the podcast that you do with Fire Engineering. Yeah, so um, I just started up again. I actually took most of the fall and the beginning of the year off, but I do a podcast called um, The Built Environment, and it's on Fire Engineering Blog Talk Radio, and I've done it for a couple years now, and it's just building construction related. Um, Typically, we'll have some sort of a guest on. I've had people, architects on. I've um, I've had Vincent Dunn on. Um, from FDNY a couple times. I've had um, John Mittendorf on from LA City, um, retired LA City. Um, yeah, and just all kind of talk about building construction. So um, that's about every six weeks, I think I end up on the rotation for that. And you can just, you can uh, find that through Fire Engineering Blog Talk Radio. Brilliant. Yeah, Mittendorf's book was uh, the Bible on the West Coast. Yeah, yeah, it's a, uh, it sure, uh, yeah, a lot of um, the West Coast guys, it's definitely like a legend out there. Yeah, absolutely. All right, and then tell me about roof perves. Yeah, so that's a, kind of a funny story. Um, Steven Tyler, who's um, um, from Idaho, the Boise area, he's a Brothers in Battle instructor. And um, on social media, he started taking pictures of um, different roofs and, and doing like hashtag roof perv. And then another one of our friends, uh, William Knight from DeKalb County, um, Georgia, he started doing the same and then I did. And then uh, all of a sudden there was a Facebook page called The Roof Perf. And um, since then, we've added one other person, Robbie Fisher, who's a battalion chief with Snohomish County 7 Fire in Washington. And the four of us have this page and it's really just um, a bunch of building construction geeks who kind of dive into the weeds and certain things. And we do a lot of this where we kind of debunk a lot of the myths. Um, so I think there's an Instagram page, there's a Facebook page. Um, we've done a couple podcasts that we've released, um, through Steven's podcast, uh, refined by fire. And, um, yeah, it's just, if you want to check that out on social media, it's uh, some of it, it's pretty lighthearted. Um, but there's a lot of really good information where we kind of dive into the weeds and some things. Excellent. All right. Well, I want to go to the first closing question then. So is there a book that you love to recommend? You talked about Garbo Mate's one. Are there any others that that spring to mind? Yeah, one book I just finished um, was uh, The The Obstacle is the Way, I believe, by Ryan Holiday. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that one, but um, Ryan Holiday is, um, he's really into stoicism and kind of studies the the Stoics. And um, I rate, as I read that book, was kind of when all this stuff was going down and I was in burnout and, you know, kind of feeling sorry for myself a little bit. And then reading that book was just like, 
a huge light bulb went off in my head just looking at you know it's it's perfect for this kind of time too we don't we're not able to control what happens we can only control the way that we react to it and and what we make of it so um, that book was was huge for me I've got to give one more book just from a building construction aspect um, is um, I get asked all the time about different building construction books. And um, there's a book that um, that I highly recommend, and it's called Building Construction Illustrated by Francis Ching. Um, you can order it on Amazon for, I think, under $40. And um, he's actually like an architect, uh, architectural draftsman, and he draws and explains like any building component you could ever think of. Um, and there's drawings and descriptions of each. So for us firefighters, it is perfect. Um, it's even in black and white. So if you want to color it, you can, um, but it's a perfect, <laughs> uh, perfect thing for, um, for actually being able to visualize like any type of construction. So I always like to throw that out there. Cause you know, if you hear someone say the term Perlin or you hear them say, you know, um, flitch beam or something like that, you can look it up in there and actually see a visual representation of it so um since since i'm a building construction guy i had to throw one of those books out too brilliant yeah and i think those are like the anatomy and physiology books you know even those the coloring ones any if you're that kind of learner you know i mean we all learn differently so some i i yeah. i never understood i was baffled by the people that would just sit and read a textbook and then make little flashcards, and that's how they learned i'm like no you got to ask me a question i got to get it wrong and then I got to go f watch videos on it, you know, and then that's how my brain works. So, or you know, even better if you can actually get on a roof and see it. But yeah, that sounds like a great tool for, for a lot of us to actually visualize because you don't get to tear a, a building apart normally. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. All right. So yeah. then what about a, uh, a movie? Okay, so movie. Um, this is one that I've watched probably like 100 times, and it's available on YouTube. And it's a documentary called Roll. And it basically talks about like the uh, jujitsu movement in Southern California. And um, I don't, it's any time where I'm just trying to nap in bed or, um, or, you know, doing something, a workout around the house or whatever. I always put that on in the background. Um, and it's uh, something I really, really just love the um, the whole thing behind it. So it's called roll. Um, yeah. And that's kind of one of my, one of my go-tos to throw on. Um, super interesting. If you have any interest in, in, uh, jujitsu at all, Brazilian jujitsu, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, but if not, it's just pretty, uh, pretty fun documentary. Brilliant. I haven't heard of that one. Now, how long have you done jujitsu for? I guess, well, I would say on the calendar, I'm coming up on a year. Um, but, uh, obviously last while I haven't been able to do it. And that, that was, uh, that I, like, I know it's like cliche. You hear people say jujitsu changed my life. Like jujitsu changed my life. Like it was, um, I needed, I needed something where, especially like when you, when you go to a place or say you've been in your profession for a long time and you're pretty, you know, you're at a place where you're like pretty comfortable with it and, and you know, you're comfortable with what your job is. And then, um, I travel and teach. So you're like, you know, you, you kind of feel like you have that dialed in a little bit and it's so good to do something that you suck at <laughs> and you get constantly reminded that you suck at it. Um, just like from, you know, like an ego or humility thing. And, um, and then for me, it was just like a brain clearing thing, like to, to learn something from scratch and have that kind of physical activity. And I, I was, hugely life-changing for me 
Yeah, no, that's so good to hear. I think the humility piece is is absolutely huge. I rolled with um, Tim Kennedy the other well the other day a few months ago. <laughs> you know who would basically you know would make me his bitch. He's a at, savage. Yeah, but it was <laughs> it was such a great time at the gym with him and Jeffro and some other guys. All were you know brown or high level black belts, but it was there was no ego there at all, and they knew I was you know like a baby deer basically compared to them. But the just the flow and like you said that being present and and just trying to work your way through the positions, but there was no like muscling through it. Um, seeing humility from you know what would be the jujitsu equivalent of a Bill Gustin really kind of reforms. If you think that you're you know the next Kurt Russell in backdraft, that you just need to calm your tits, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that you know get back to the books, you know. Yeah. So if you if you if you've already got it, where you think you're just a lazy boy is the the place for you the next 10 years then yeah go go roll with someone learn some real humility and then go back to the fire service with that humility and ask yourself how can i get better today yeah absolutely brilliant all right well then next question is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions so I thought about this a little bit, and um, I, you had already said that you were interested in getting Dr. Gabor Mate on, which I think would be pretty um, fascinating. Um, but I would also like, uh, it would be really cool to see um, Ryan Holiday, who's the author of The Obstacle is the Way. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. He's written a couple other books. And, um, I just think I would like to hear him kind of, his take on kind of the emergency services, you know, like the people that you speak to, you know, EMS, police, fire, military, um, and just kind of how some of those stoic philosophies fit into to what, to what we do. I think that would be really, really fascinating. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, I need to sit down and uh, read his book next. I'm reading, just finishing off Johan's book now. Um, but yeah, I'll uh, I'll put that at the top of my list then and see if I can reach out to him. Now is a very good time to get get people that are usually very busy because they're all <laughs> stuck in their home, you know, playing with uh, their Wii fitness apps. And <laughs> so so yeah, yeah I, that's a great yeah. idea. It was funny. I when I was think I I know you asked this question, so I was thinking about it a little bit, and and then I'd had a few names pop up, and then I check and like, oh yep, I've you've already had this person on, you've already had this person on, so um, yeah. So I thought that would be an interesting one. Yeah, brilliant. I will work on that. Thank you so much. All right. The the next question before we talk about where everyone can find you, what do you do to decompress? I mean, obviously, I'm assuming jujitsu is one of them. Now, is there anything else? Yeah, um, definitely fitness uh, is like, you know, I've, I've gone up and down with that um, a lot, but um, jiu-jitsu has been huge for that. Um, and then um, actually my, my son, I've got a seven-year-old boy and he, he does it as well. So we will get the mats out and we'll roll together, which is a blast. Uh, but I also try and do quite a bit of like hiking and trail running and that's a big thing for, for decompressing for me too. Just no music, no sound and just you know, go climb a mountain somewhere and get some of that energy out. Beautiful. Now, are you, are you guys allowed to do that as far as this uh, isolation at the moment? Are the, the trails still open? Yeah, there, anything public isn't. Um, like anything that's like, a, you know, like a, um, a regional park or anything, those things have been closed. But, you know, just find like a, a cut block where the power lines have gone through and you know, somewhere where you're kind of, you know, off on your own but um but yeah we've been i haven't actually done a ton of that in the last little bit um just trying to 
trying to isolate as much as possible. Yeah, well, buy yourself a ghillie suit. That way, if anyone comes, you can just drop to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> All right. Well, then, as far as finding you and, you know, finding out how people can um, reach out to you if they want to bring you to, to speak, what's the best place to go on the Internet? Yeah, see, so I'm on Facebook. You can look up um, James Johnson, or I think my handle on it is FF, as in firefighter, James Johnson. Um, and then my email um, is a good way too, which is um, James Tyler Johnson, all one word, at live.com. Um, so either of those ways, uh, people could reach out to me for sure. Um, that'd probably be the best way. Excellent. Well, James, I want to say thank you. I know, uh, you know, you've come across my radar a lot as as definitely one of the building construction gurus and um you know when we talked obviously there's that whole human side which i love about this podcast I mean, everyone that comes on is known for a thing but there's an entire story behind it but um i want to thank you for for being so candid and taking the time during this isolation away from your little seven-year-old boy to talk to us Awesome. Yeah. Thanks a lot for what you do too, James, like bringing all these amazing guests in. And, um, you know, I know I can't even count how many people have been put on my radar um, due to you having them on the show. And um, I also really appreciate um, how serious and, um, you know, like important guests that you bring on, but then also um, how how easy or just your social media presence in a lot of ways where you know i'll find it and just start bursting out laughing from something that you've uh, <laughs> that you've posted so um i really like that kind of the yin and yang of it so thanks for what you do <laughs> <laughs>